It's good to be here. What a um, great time of worship we had. Isn't that good? Well, I mean, we enjoyed it. I trust God did as well. The whole idea of it is that God worship. Oh, uh, we worship God and He enjoys it. But uh, certainly must say that the team make it so much easier for us to express our hearts, praise and worship to the living God. Eh? Can we just bring the lights up a little bit in the, in the auditorium just so I can see? I'm trying to offset these big lights in my eyes here. Just that uh, I just want to be able to see people when they fall asleep. So it gives me, a, when we get to seven or eight, and now it's time to finish. So uh, yeah, we'll go from there. But let me pray. Father, tonight as we begin this uh, new series called Get Wrecked, we just want to be able to open ourselves to you. Knowing that getting wrecked means that we get nailed, we get embarrassed, we get beaten, we get exposed, we lose. These are the times, Lord, when we are open because we have been defeated. And these are the times, Lord, when you step in. Where you step in and you become the God above all our reasoning, above all of our logic, above all of our rationale. And you say, yes, I'm the God who takes the defeat and turns it into victory because I'm the God who rose from the grave. When the devil thought he had won, he had lost. And so tonight, Lord, we want to open ourselves up to your word and we trust that you will help us understand a greater understanding of what it means to live the Christian life. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, as I said, the, uh, my prayer there, get wrecked uh, is a definition. It's an inter, inter, uh, it's a, uh, internet term that basically describes how it is that uh, you get munted, you know, you get exposed, you get defeated, you get beaten. Is that right, guys? Roughly, am I getting on this, on this right page? Especially when you're talking about um, uh, different gaming and, and the like, eh? Yeah? Okay. All right. So that's it for me. That's all I know about that. But... Um, what we're going to talk about tonight is the subject of pure joy. And uh, pure joy, we're told, is something that we should expect or look forward to. Would that be right? When you see something called pure joy, it just looks like this absolutely ecstatic experience. Okay, pure joy means just that. You're going to experience something that is beyond imagination. Uh, the word ecstasy means to be standing besides oneself. Okay, standing beside oneself. To be out of your body, standing beside oneself oneself. And pure joy gives that impression. Well, um, what we're going to look at tonight is some scriptures that put pure joy in a very, very different context. And this is how it goes from the book of James. It says, consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work in you, work its work, so that you may be mature and complete not lacking anything. Well, when I first read this scripture some years ago, I thought, that's weird. This, uh, this guy James must be some sort of sadist or masochist, you know? He's sort of like into pain and calling it pleasure. And, um, and, and, and it didn't make such sense to me at the time. But now, some decades on, and maybe with a little bit of maturity on, you can actually look at this scripture and you can see by virtue of your own life experience how it is that, yes, we can anticipate the difficult times, the trials, and see them as pure joy being outworked. Why? Because in the trials and in the challenges and in the temptations that we face, uh, all of these are designed to help us become more like Jesus. And so when we face a trial and face a challenge, uh, James, he's looking beyond the immediate problem and the pain. 
And he's looking beyond it and saying, when I get through this, when I am developed in this new area of perseverance in my life, I'm going to gain a perfection that is going to make me more like Jesus. And that in itself is where the pure joy comes from. It's not the pain. It's not the agony and the anguish. But it's looking beyond it with eyes of faith and going, when I get through this challenge, there's going to be pure joy because I'm going to be made more in the image of Christ. Now, I went for a walk this afternoon. Uh, no big deal. Did a couple of hours walk. New boots. New boots. Guess what I got? Blisters. Well, just one, actually, on one side of my foot. So I don't know what, what the problem is, whether I'm walking crooked, but I ended up with one blister. Now, it's a real problem to me because um, some of you know I did this walk called the Camino de Santiago earlier in the year. 800 kilometers I walked, and I didn't get one blister. And so I walk around Tapuna for two hours, and I get a blister. Now, the good thing about a blister is that I know that if I look after it well, it's going to grow into a callus. And if it grows into a callus, it's going to harden my foot. And in that place where my skin was once soft and therefore vulnerable, it's no longer going to be soft and vulnerable. It's going to be hard, and it's going to be able to take the punishment that allows me to go on these walks. And so whilst it might cause me some uh, short-term pain, I know that it's going to create some long-term gain, and my new boots will actually be okay. Does that make sense? Yeah, of course it is. And this is the attitude that uh, we're told to foster by James the Apostle. Maybe for some of you, I could just roll a new video, a, a new commercial that's been on TV recently. Let's watch the sound, get the sound right on this, and I'll show it to you. This locker room, this team, these 50,000 fans, they said he wouldn't make it, but he always knew he could. Why? Because his why is unbreakable. Stronger than his dad's discipline. Louder than the people who said he didn't have a chance. At five years old, a door falls on him, crushing his hip. That doesn't stop him. They labeled him polio. You're nobody. You're not good enough, they said. These words sting, but they don't stop him. They become his fuel. They become his why. He leaves behind everything he knows for a chance and arrives with nothing. He gets sidelined, overlooked, relegated to the wing. He runs across the city just so he can train for hours. And he does it all over again. Why? Because his why is stronger than the pain, bigger than his opponents. And when his body gives up, his why keeps fighting. Listen to me, everybody. You can't give up. You can't give in. If it was easy, everybody would do it. But if life's got you down, I need you to do what Fekatoa did. I need you to get up and prove them wrong. What's your why? Did you like that? Yeah, your why is bigger than your opponents, stronger than your pain. Okay? Stronger than your pain, bigger than your opponents. And so it's a very simple story. Of course, uh, Fekatoa was raised in Tonga. And uh, as a kid, he was playing uh, chase with his cousins, and um, he, he grabbed hold of, a, uh, of some doors that were in a hall, and these doors weren't attached, and they were these big oak doors, and as he ran away, the doors fell on top of him and smashed his hips as a five-year-old. He had to live with his grandmother for two years, couldn't go to school, while she massaged his hips and made him stronger and made him stronger. Then finally he went to school, and uh, against the teacher's advice, he went in a running race, and he got second. 
And he realized that his legs were better. And so he went on, as we know, to be an all black. To be an all black. Well, this morning, what I'm, this afternoon, tonight, <laughs> we'll get there eventually, eh? Tonight, what I'm going to do is go through um, five different categories that I think are the times when in our lives we, um, we feel the, the burden of perseverance and, and the difficulties of life. And, um, and I think in some sense I've loaded these up in a way that caused them to be more and more difficult as we go. Okay, so I'm starting with some of the challenges that we face. But some of these challenges might start off as the ones that, well, yeah, yeah, we're familiar with that. And then I'm going to get to the ones that, that really hurt. Okay, so the first one I want to talk about tonight is, uh, is the heavy load. Um, a heavy load is things like a workload, yeah? And you start the day and you're going, man, I'm just, I just don't know how this is going to happen. I really don't know how I'm going to get from here to there. A heavy load could be an exam. How many of you have looked at your exam timetable and gone, this is a heavy load? Come on. Yeah? Yeah, I can remember that. I remember the first year at university, um, we got 10 days off to study, and then we got two and a half weeks for our exams. And um, I looked at my timetable, and my exams were the very first morning, the very second, the very first afternoon, and the very first evening. So I had two and a half weeks to do my, my exams, but somehow the calendar had put them all in a place where my three exams for that part of that semester were the first three places and spaces of the exam calendar. Morning, afternoon, and night. And I only had 10 days to swap for it. Man, that was a heavy load, eh? And uh, I can, all I can remember is being absolutely fried at the end of it. I don't know whether I was... Uh, where, you know, I can't really remember how well I did. I know I passed, but at the time it was like, this is crazy. It seems like God is against me, you know? Or at least the examiners were when they put my subjects in the very first early part. If I'd had an extra if two weeks, say, if the exams had been put at the end of that exam calendar, you know, I might have done well and it would have been an easier run. But I learned some stuff. I learned how to study properly. I learned how to use my time wisely. And so when we have a heavy load, um, what we find is that there's an opportunity for God to stretch your capacity. How many of you have found that, that you find that you start off with something and you go, this is just too much for me. And then after a period of time, it starts to become easier. Is that true? Is it only? Of course it's true. Yeah. You know, the reason why God only gives us one child at a time, <laughs> when we're as parents, or maybe occasionally two, um, is because you go, wow, one child, and it completely occupies all my time. And then by the time you get to about the fourth or fifth one, they usually bounce, you know, um, by comparison to the care that you needed for the first one. Somehow the, the fourth, fifth, and sixth child are born tougher, yeah? And, uh, and, mum and mums and dads are just like, ah, yeah, another kid, just shove them at the end of the table. They'll be processed through. They'll leave in 20 years' time, hopefully 17. But, uh, you know... God stretches your capacity and gives you the ability. And physically, it's the same. I, I used to row for the, uh, for the city, and I can remember the beginning of one season, a new coach rolls in. We're doing some track work, running around the, the domain, and at the end of that, uh, end of doing a couple of miles, pretty hard running, he says, give us 20 squat jumps. So we give 20 squat jumps. Just We had to get our feet off the ground, and with that, we all fell on the ground, collapsed, absolutely exhausted. And he looks at us, at us and says, uh, by the end of the season you will do 120 squat jumps times three every training session. And we looked at him and we said, 
we're out of here, man. Yeah, like either something, something's going to give. Uh, either you're crazy or we're crazy to subject ourselves to your craziness. And, uh, and guess what? By the end of the season, that's what we were doing and we couldn't believe it. Um, we were really, really good at squats and we didn't do so well in the rowing, but we won all the <laughs> squat jumping races, you know? Yeah, yeah. It wasn't my best season that year. But however, we were good at squat jumps. And what about that pile of work that you just simply got on your desk day after day? And you start and you finish. You start and you finish and you start and you finish. God is stretching your capacity. And these are some of the things that God will use to test your character. You know, because it's very easy to just have a whinge and a cry, isn't it? You know, when you've got too much work to do, we all start off with a whinge and a cry. We start our life with a whinge and a cry. When we're born, we have a whinge and a cry. And then as we start to grow and get older, we whinge and we cry. I don't want to do the dishes, mum. I don't want to scrub the roasting dish, mum. You know, we whinge and we cry in the hope that someone will come along and rescue us. The whole deal about growing up is that you actually look around at one point in the time of your life and you go, guess what? You're the big person here now. If you whinge and cry, no one's going to listen. And so you're learning to trust God. You're learning to grow in your capacity. The other thing about having a heavy load is that you learn to trust others. You see, sometimes... It's not just about having a heavy load. It's about learning uh, God's ways of asking, God's ways of saying, hey, look, you need more than you to do this. You need a team. And so uh, the power of the ask is something really, really important, particularly around the home. You need to do it well. In the workplace, if you can work with others, it's even better. Uh, There are lots of really small businesses in New Zealand that will stay small businesses because somebody's never had the ability to ask to build a team, to create something bigger that could actually grow. You know, it's, not, not the end, it's not the end of the world if you don't, but what I'm saying is that you end up limited in your capacity and sometimes overburdened. And ultimately, with a heavy load, you get to see God's deliverance. You see, one thing about learning to work under a heavy load is that you learn to work accurately. You learn to work smart. You learn to work with... Uh, a sense in which God is guiding you and God is going to help you with your priorities. And uh, without God's peace, without God's uh, hand in all of this, you're just going to become overwhelmed. And so it's a really, really important lesson to learn earlier on that God is the one who will deliver you, even in times of just regular life, regular busyness. It's really important. Okay, another thing that I find is really challenging for all of us is, uh, is financial challenges. There was an ad on television a few years ago of this lady standing at uh, one of the supermarkets and she just used her FPOS machine and she's going, in her mind she's going, please go through, please go through, please go through, please go through. Now, um, it's not difficult to get in that position, is it? Especially when you find that times are tight. And, uh, and money, for most people, is always tight. It's an economic truth that we will spend 95% of whatever we earn regardless of whatever we earn. And 95% of people in this world will do that. So there's two time, two lots of 95%. 95% of people will spend uh, 95% of what they earn. And so therefore, financial pressure is a common, uh, is a common experience. Uh, and what about the thing about financial pressure is that it gets our attention, doesn't it? You know, especially when it says decline. Okay, 
gets your attention. And, uh, and it's one of those things that we have to continue to work hard at because we have to learn how to set um, our priorities. Now, you can imagine if you had all the money in the world that you could ever need. You would be frivolous. You would be selfish. You would be mindless in your use of it. And therefore, there would be no restraint, no discipline, no values, no priorities. When you're taking um, $100 and you're trying to work out what of this $200 worth of goods is going to become my priority, that is a real discipline. And that's a discipline that's going to create patience and perseverance and a great learning experience for you. Because uh, without that limited resource, you're just going to be frivolous with the money that you've got. Is that fair to say? Yeah? You know, when, you, when I was at work, uh, sorry, when I was at school, when I got my first paycheck, I just thought I was the richest man in the world. Till about, you know, I got paid every two weeks, till about, you know, five or six days before the next payday. And then I realized that I wasn't the richest man in the world, but my wealth compared to having none was actually quite enormous. And then all of a sudden you have these real-life, mature, grown-up experiences like paying for the petrol in your car, paying rent, paying the electricity bill. And all of a sudden, what you thought was a lot of money just starts to diminish very, very quickly. And of course, we all have those experiences. But learning to trust God is to learning to uh, determine his priorities. What are God's priorities for what you spend your money on? And when your circumstances change, say, for example, if, you're, um, uh, if you have a family like Michaela and I did relatively young, uh, these challenges become really, really important because, uh, vital because your choices about what you do with money will actually determine the, out- the outcome will be determined in the well-being of your children. And so these responsibilities start to accumulate around you. And this is a real time for God to use this time to build the pressure that he needs to form your character. Because it's not what the choice is, it's how you make the choice. It's whether you have a screaming match over whether this money should be spent here or there. It's whether you actually prioritise this because this is important because it's generosity and we're going to prioritise some generosity into our living and giving or we keep it all for ourselves. And then we all, as Christians, know that uh, God has this, um, this priority when it comes to our giving about honouring God first. And so to take funds and to say we're going to honour God with what little we have is, is a huge challenge to all of us. It's a, it's a faith challenge. And all of a sudden, you go from being this young person who has your first paycheck, and it doesn't seem long, and you're married, and you've got kids and, and responsibilities, and those burdens start to crush in upon you. And this is God's way of maturing you and growing you up. Because you've got to make a decision. The things that you used to do when you were younger and, and less responsibility, you couldn't do. And so God is testing you. God is developing perseverance in you. And whilst there might be a lot of pain, there's going to be ultimately joy when you make a good decision. Okay? When you make a good decision. Now, um, I could show my age really easily by telling you how much we paid for our first home here in Tauranga. We bought our first home for $57,000. Okay? And you're looking at me going, man, you are so old. Okay? It wasn't pounds and pence. Okay? I was raised with, why didn't I buy two? Ten of them. Yeah, exactly. But I could only afford one 
because uh, my two weeks take-home pay was $165. So go figure, you know. So you work out $57,000, then you divide that by $80 a week. Uh, that just makes um, an $800 paycheck a week $650,000. Uh, sorry, $57,000 house. Yeah. Does that make sense? Multiply everything by 10. Okay, that's all I'm saying. So everything's of similar value. Okay, it's just in re real terms. But putting faith in God and doing things his way is a really, really strategic priority that God wants you to learn. And he's not going to teach you any other way than by putting you into a place where you've got a choice to make. And it's a real step of faith when you're saying, well, should I pay the electricity bill here uh, or bring this money into the Lord's kingdom? And we've sat there, Makeda and I, going, well, I don't know. You know, is this the right thing to do, to pay our bills or to... Um, uh, you know, give some money to the Lord. And so God said, test me. That's one of the only time he says, test me. In Malachi, he says, test me. Uh, bring the tithe into the Lord's house and I will pour out blessing upon you. And uh, I've got to say, time and time again, God proved himself. And it's still, I still don't know how it works. I really don't know how it works. But God, by his grace, says, um, look, I'll, I'll do this for you. Test me and I'll show you. And uh, the more that we honor God, the more we seem to have the ability to pay our bills. It's as if you hand over to God your financial position and you go, ultimately, God, you're now my partner because I'm investing in you. I'm bringing my tithe into your house. Okay? So now this is not my problem about paying the electricity bill. This is your problem. Okay? Okay, as long as I'm not being stupid with the rest, as long as I'm not going down the TAB and, you know, betting on the Melbourne Cup or betting on the Australians to win the rugby, um, you, know, um, you know, we've got to be responsible. And so faith in God's ways and his provision. There's nothing like money, nothing like money to actually give you a test. Have you, have you found this? Is it true? Yeah? Uh, when I was first a Christian, I went to a discipleship course and there was this little old lady there uh, who'd been a Christian for forever. She probably knew Jesus as a little boy. And, um, and, he, uh, and she said something really quite profound. She said, always make sure that your giving is in keeping with your income, or God will ensure that your income is in keeping with your giving. <laughs> and I was like, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, store that one away. Yeah, what she's saying is generosity is actually part of the, the nature and character of God. And so we come to God with that, with that same attitude. Okay, so let's move on. Here's another way in which God challenges us. Sickness. Sickness is one of the realities of being human. It's the human condition, eh? You know, we're, we're prone to sickness. Uh, this generation has never, ever been healthier. Okay, back in the old days, a hundred years ago, okay, before I was born, a hundred years ago, it was really common for people to have eight, nine, ten children on the basis that three, four, five of them would die. That was that was standard. Okay, uh, there's an area down in Fiordland that um, I've been hunting with uh, Monica's husband Peter, and uh, his family spent some time in this area. 
um, just as pioneers, Peter's family. And Peter tells me this great story, a real sad story, about how these pioneers went into this area and, um, and, the, and the children got sick and there was no way that anybody could come and bring supplies. And uh, we were climbing up this mountain one day, um, uh, Mount Webb, and uh, we get to this little, get to this place at the top and Pete says, somewhere around here there's a grave. And I said, how do you know that? And he says, well, this is the story that I was reading about my ancestors. And he said, uh, it wasn't my ancestor, but um, a man after he'd lost his child uh, through sickness and through not being able to eat properly, he brought his child up and buried him on the top of this mountain. I said, oh, that's really, really sad. And uh, he goes, yeah, so this you know, makes this sort of a sacred spot. And I was like, yeah, yeah, it is. And he said, what makes it even sadder is that by the time he got back down the mountain, his other two children had died. That was over 100 years ago. But that was the reality of life. And sickness is one of those things that I think always grabs our attention. When you're sick, something about your spirit begins to change. Now, I, uh, about 20 years ago, I had problems with my gallbladder. If anybody here had gallbladder problems, it's like someone's sticking a knife in your guts. Okay? And uh, i got to admit, in the middle of the night when I'd have these gallbladder attacks, I'd crawl out of bed and I'd be pleading with God, God, take this pain away, take this pain away. I repent of, and I'd start going, this, I repent of, of that attitude, and I repent of, I won't do that again. I repent, I'll do that, I'll do, oh. you know, and you, you start to realize that, you know, your spirit and the pain in your body are quite tightly attuned, you know, and you, and you realize that uh, there's an opportunity here for God to sift and sort you in the most difficult of times. Um, but um, when you're sick, one of the things that you do do is you stop and you wake up. And you just realize that you have to appreciate what you've had or what you have. Depends if you're still sick. It's what you had. Okay. Um, again, going back to my time when I was rowing, I got a really bad back one time. I got a bulge disc in my back. <clears throat> and um, how many of you have ever had back problems? Just put your <laughs> okay, who hasn't? <laughs> All right, about five of you haven't. <laughs> All I can say is that oh, we've got a good back now, thankfully, by the grace of God, it's come right. But all I can say now is through that experience, um, I, I appreciated what I had and, um, and you know, really worked hard to ensure that I got fixed. And, and you learn to, to value your body uh, and you also learn a little bit of compassion about others. The other thing about um, being, being sick is that um, you learn to be humbled, humbled by others' care. How many of you in your heart of hearts go, I'd like to look after myself, thank you very much. And you just sneak your little hand up there. I'd like to look after myself, thank you very much. There's this little independent rebel within you that goes, I don't need help from anybody. Thank you very much. I'm too proud to need help. And when you're flat on your back, sick with something that you didn't expect to be sick from, uh, something that's caught you by surprise or may, maybe snuck up on you, and then someone walks around with a casserole, drops it on the front door, rings the doorbell, there's something in you that goes, thank you very much. And the other part of you goes, I'll cook my own dinner. There's nothing wrong with me. I don't care if I have to crawl around the floor and make bacon and eggs on, on, on the carpet. It's going to be me cooking my dinner. 
Yeah? But you get humbled. And you learn what it means to be part of the body of Christ. You learn that this is not all bad, that you're never born into this world to be independent. You're actually born in this world dependent, and you will remain dependent upon others. The reason why we have such good health now in the 21st century is because we are leaning upon the education and the experience of others to give us what we have. How many of you have had an accident or a sickness that if you were born a hundred years ago would might have meant you're not here tonight? How many of you have been in that place? Okay, we're thinning out the population here quite quickly, aren't we? Yeah. You see, it's quite remarkable how much we actually need each other, yet we've got this fierce independence that tells us that we don't need each other. One of the things about sickness is that um, I probably should have created a different uh, category for this one, but uh, we become more sympathetic and more compassionate towards others. Is that we actually learn that um, you're not perfectly perfect and you're never ever going to have this lifetime of perfect health. You know, you're not going to be the person who, when you're 99 years old, lying in hospital, dying, the doctor says, what is that? A doctor's asked, what is that person dying of? The person's going to say, nothing. Okay, that person's dying of nothing. We will all die of something. Last time I checked, um, death had 100% success rate over the human race. Okay, we all want to pretend that's not true for us, but the simple reality is that it is. And so sickness in itself can often lead, and this is where it becomes so, um, so much of, as C.S. Lewis says, God's megaphone to us is because we know that sickness has the potential to lead to death. And death is one of those obviously more sobering events in life. And as we see other people die around us, because that's just the nature of life, is that we find ourselves being immersed in their stories and the pain of experiencing other people who are close to us dying is something that we would much rather do without. Wouldn't that be true? Yeah, of course it is. And yet... When we walk closely with people who are dying, what we find is that we start to come to understand the heart of God in ways that we've never understood it before. We understand compassion. We understand empathy. We understand sympathy. We understand grief. We understand loss. We understand what it means to be a burden bearer, to, to be there with somebody and hold their hand literally as they pass away is something that is an incredibly rich human experience of the utmost sadness. And um, all I can say is that after every time I see a friend or a family member pass away, heaven changes for me. My image of heaven. Heaven's getting filled out with people that I love. And um, all of a sudden, it's not such a far, far away place. It's actually almost within reach of my imagination and reach of my hands because I can experience it in ways by visualizing the people that I know and love there. yeah. Um, I hope, hope it's okay to say this. I know my daughter's in the audience tonight, but um, when her husband, my son-in-law, passed away two and a half years ago, um, that was a huge, huge transition for us as a family. You know, to see this young man full of life, 25 years old, die of leukemia. 
But there was a, a particular night that I will never forget, and I think it's changed me forever. And that was um, Carl. He was a worship leader in his church. And, um, and so when he knew that he only had a limited amount of time left, the doctors said, all the treatments that we've done haven't worked. Um, and he said, okay, I've got a limited time left, real short time. And so what he did is he put on Facebook that there was going to be a worship night at his church. Um, and, and church auditorium is about this size. And uh, we, we didn't know how many people were going to turn up. And uh, the, the, the music team was there doing its thing and, and people started to come. And 750 people turned up on a Wednesday night, just out of the blue. And, uh, and all Carl wanted was a night of worship, to worship God together. And um, I can remember standing behind him. He was in the front row and I was the next row behind him. And uh, there was a couple more songs to go. And I gave him a little prod. I said, go up stage. Go up on stage and lead these last two songs. Because he was pretty weak, you know. He had the, the chemo haircut, you know, all that going on. And he gets up and he starts to sing and he starts to lead all of us in worship. And there was a moment there where I've never experienced it before, where heaven met earth. It was just this tangible presence of the power of God. And, um, and out of that really, 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 really difficult experience came great joy. But my view of heaven has never, ever shifted from that moment. We just got a touch of heaven that night and so did 750 other people, mind you. It was just an amazing experience. And so when I talk about sickness tonight, and I talk about the difficulty and the pain, as I said at the beginning of this talk, I'm intentionally ramping it up. Because these are the things that rob us of our joy. These are the things that rob us of our confidence in God. And yet they can, obviously, in the most trying of circumstances, be the times when we feel the most close to God. Even in times where you feel that your heart is being ripped and tear, torn apart in ways that you've never, ever experienced before. You know, um, I learned new things about myself. I learned new things about my family. I learned new things about God. I would never have experienced those things if it wasn't such a tough, difficult time. What about relationship challenges? Anybody ever had a problem with a relationship? You know, a friendship gone bad? You know? Of course, all the married people here, you know, they, they, they're fine. Um, because, you know, once you're married, everything's perfect. You know, to have and to hold, for better or for worse, for richer or for poorer, sickness and health, and love ever after. Is that right? Challenges. Challenges. Is that right? I'm not going to question you, Michelle. But the first thing you do uh, when you're in a relationship and uh, things start to go wrong is that um, you learn about yourself. Have you ever noticed that? You learn who you are because someone's telling you what you are. You learn what you do because someone's telling you what you do. Uh, you learn how that makes the other person feel because that's what the other person's explaining to you, calmly and gently, of course. Um, so you learn about yourself. Now, in all, all reality... Uh, you do learn about yourself. You didn't realize that your way of living life was not the only way of living life. Okay? And, um, and it's sort of, 
<clears throat> I mean, why hang up clothes when they, they, they live on the floor? They, they're easier to find. They are easier to find there. Oh, Amina Khan, yeah. <laughs> Preach it. Yeah. They shouldn't have clothes hangers. We should have ground hangers. You know, that sort of, yeah, I don't know what quite term we use. But, um, you know, I'm always caught with this space. It's a really difficult decision of what do you do with the shirt that you only wore for 20 minutes? You know, what do you do with it? It doesn't need to go in the wash, but you don't want to put it back in the wardrobe because it's identifying it as a clean shirt. And it's not a clean shirt. It is no longer a clean shirt. Okay? And so what do you do with it? You've got to hang it somewhere. And usually I find that, uh, well, most people's houses, we've got rid of them now, but most people's houses have things like exercise equipment, bicycles <laughs> in the bedroom and things like that, and, you know, treadmills. After about a week, they're never used again, so they're perfectly <laughs> poised to hang clothes on, you know? So, yeah, this is, this is the way it goes. So you learn things about yourself um, that you didn't know. Um, yeah, so um, you learn about reconciliation, okay? Um, now, Proverbs says, don't let the sun go down on your anger, okay? Um, <clears throat> um, there's some long nights to be had. <laughs> um, did you know that sunrises are beautiful? Yeah. Um, sometimes your eyes are a little bit uh, dim to see them, but they are beautiful, um, yeah, so you need to learn about reconciliation, the process of really reconciliation, that it's okay to be saying sorry. Yeah, it's really important to say sorry. Uh, in fact, you need to learn it. Um, getting older doesn't mean you're right. Getting older means you're wiser. Okay, and when you're wiser, it means that you say sorry when it's appropriate. Okay, so don't, don't think, folks, as you get older, you're going to be right more often. That's not the way life is going to be. As you get older, you get wiser, and when you're wiser, you learn to be humble and say sorry. All right, and of course, that means you learn about forgiveness. Okay, uh, forgiving others and learning to forgive yourself um, is really, really important. In fact, if you can't forgive yourself, you'll never be able to say sorry. Okay, because saying sorry is all about learning. The other side of the cross is that you're forgiven. Because why? Because you get things wrong. And by doing that, and if you're not saying sorry at least once a week to the person you love, you're either having no conversation and no life, or, um, or you've hardened your heart. Ooh, there's putting it out there. Uh, you learn to value differences. Um, of course, people are different, and there is often two ways of being right. Turn to the person you came with and say, there are two ways of being right. There are two ways of being right. Okay? Now, some of you are saying there are three ways of being right, and I've got two of them. Yeah? Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, my way or the highway. Thanks very much. I don't know who said that, but uh, we're in trouble. Yeah. So, look, relationship challenges are the stuff that God uses to mold you. Let's get serious about it. You know, um, you hear the guy who, who was saying in his prayer to God, God, thank you for today. I haven't upset anybody. I haven't said a lie. I haven't had a bad thought. Uh, in fact, my life is going swimmingly well. But in about five minutes, I've got to get out of bed and start the day. Yeah? 
You see, the thing is that we are put on this planet with each other to actually learn the art of what it means to be like Jesus. Without other people in our lives, we're never ever going to be challenged. We're just going to think that we're okay. Uh, and if, you, if you're going to have that attitude, you're never going to get on living with people. We have to continue to be um, ground through that, that mill of relationships that allows us to learn what it is to be human and to be human and to allow others to live and to give room for others to express themselves. It's so vitally important. Otherwise, you just become, uh, as easy to do, uh, some dominating, hard-hearted person who feels that it is your way or the highway. Now, I'm going to finish on this, this one here. I think this is probably the biggest challenge we'll face. That is... Um, Unrighteous attack is probably the easiest way of, of describing it. Um, let, me, let me give you an example of this. And uh, I'm sure you've all had these things. You can start off at school in the playground where somebody decides they don't like you. And so they tell lies about you. Or the person who doesn't get invited to your birthday party because mum said you can only have three best friends at your birthday party, that person gets a snitch. And so, you know, you don't get invited to the next party and so it goes on. Well, what happens in life is that the seven-year-old birthday parties just grow up, okay? And they become 27-year-old, 47-year-old, 57-year-old, 77-year-old, same problems. And, and the challenge for us in relationships is that we've got to learn to push through those challenges. Um, uh, give me an example of something that happened to me uh, about four years ago now. Um, um, most of you know that I'm the Baptist national leader. And so I've um, got 240 churches out there that I, I give uh, leadership to. The, um, one day I was just sitting at my email and I get this letter. It comes to me from a group called Truth Watch. Okay, so... They've set themselves up as an authority on truth, biblical truth. Right? I'm always a bit nervous about somebody who knows everything. But um, anyway, um, there are a few good groups out there like Cult Watch that do help the body of Christ, but Truth Watch was a new one to me. Anyway, they wrote to me and they said, um, we've been made aware that the uh, humanitarian agency Tear Fund has... Um, got a CEO by the name of Steve Tolstrop, his name was, uh, and st we asked Steve to acknowledge that homosexuality is a sin. Well, I was reading this letter going, this is a bit weird. And uh, he is not prepared to do this. So we've written to you to write to him to ask him to do this. So I'm like, this isn't my problem. <laughs> and so I write back and I go, this is not my problem. <laughs> and then they write to me and they say, if you don't write to him to tell him that he's got a problem, then we're going to write about you to say that you've got a problem because you're not telling off the other guy who's got a problem. <laughs> and so I write back four words. Are you threatening me? Well, you can go on the website now. And Truthwatch has an article about Craig Vernal, who was approached to, um, to um, rebuke the guy who's the CEO of Tear Fund 
But because he wasn't prepared to do that, we now condemn Craig Vernal as national leader of the Baptist churches. <laughs> what did you say? God bless them. It's all pure joy, Dave. It's pure joy. That's right. God bless them. And I'm just sitting there going, what, what's just happened, you know? How did this happen? Where, does, where do people get off, get off doing this sort of stuff? You know, so, um, but, but let me, what I did is nothing. I left it. Um, but um, it's one of those things that is an example of how people can have an unrighteous attack against you. Now, what I'm describing is pretty high level. Uh, but also, let me describe to you some other things that you might be able to relate to a little bit better. Uh, I've been 21 years here and uh, as the leader of the Baptist, uh, of Bethany Baptist Church. And uh, over time, you have to chat with folks about their behaviour. And I've had situations where, um, say on a worship team, I found out that somebody wasn't doing too good, up to no good. And so I've had a chat and... Uh, and I say, look, until you get this sorted, you better step down. Yeah. This is an uncommon thing to do. You know, you might be leading a small group and somebody's got, they've got some personal problems. Say, look, lay, lay that down for a while. You know, get your life sorted out and uh, then you can step back into this. And so, I mean, on this particular occasion, this guy, I stepped him down and uh, somebody came up to him and said, um, oh, how come you're not involved in the music team right now? Oh, um, Pastor Craig said I wasn't allowed to be. That was it. So I get confronted. Um, so-and-so told me that you said that so-and-so is not allowed to be on the music team anymore. And I go, that's right. Why? Oh, I'm not telling you. It's not, not your business. But I like that person when they do their music. Yeah, yeah, so do I. But they're not doing it now. Okay, well, I think you're really unfair because he's a nice guy and if you're just stepping him down, it's just not appropriate. I said, well, that's just the way it's going to be. Now, I've had that scenario in different situations uh, probably four or five times and that's a real easy one to describe, okay? Um, there are other ones that are just mind-blowing, um, that you just go, this can't be the real world, this must be some parallel universe that I've stepped into because uh, people have, you know, sort of taken offence over stuff. Um, I can remember one time um, one of our Maori folk were leading uh, worship and he pulled out a, uh, a patu, um, it's like a greenstone uh, weapon, and he was just using it as doing a haka, okay? And uh, I was standing at the back of church and this <laughs> this guy just walked and he just steamed and as he was going out into the car park he was telling everybody who was walking in late don't go in there, don't go in there it's evil, it's evil and I'm like oh good night evil and if you knew the guy, the gentlest sweetest guy you could ever meet and uh, it was just a cultural expression of, of, a, of a haka and uh, it was fantastic actually and uh, anyway I, I yelled out to him I said um, I need to see you tomorrow. This guy was retired, so I knew that I could see him because he didn't do anything. So he came in and he saw me. And um, 
And I said, how many people have you told um, about what you saw on Sunday with the patu? He says, oh, everybody. I've been on the phone, talked to my home group. Um, <laughs> and uh, how many people have you told that you're seeing me today? Oh, everybody, because I know I'm in trouble. So <laughs> what he's doing is he's rallying his defense before the offense happens. And, uh, and I said, you know what you've got to do? Because I haven't done anything here right now in this conversation. But I want you to go today and ring up everybody that you've already rung and apologize to them for the fact that you've already inferred that, you're giving me, that I'm giving you grief before we even had a conversation. And he did. And then we met. And I said, I've never, ever met such a petulant 65-year-old in my whole life. <laughs> I don't know what he did with that, but I haven't seen him since. <laughs> but what I'm saying here is that, is that um, when you have an unrighteous attack, you have to own up the fact that you're bigger than those labels. Okay? You're bigger than those labels. Because those labels can really, really hurt, and they can cut really close to the bone. And... Uh, this is, and what I say now isn't uh, meant to be vindictive, but you do have to come back to a place where you look at this and you go, vengeance is mine. Because why? Because if you start chasing down the he said, she said, why did you do that, how come, what's going on here scenarios, it's like running around behind, um, uh, it's like running around with a, with a gallon of petrol and all it does is ignite the thing to even greater to a greater extent. Um, what I've found is that if you can, by the grace of God, hold on to what it is that God has given you as some form of peace, these things end up suffocating themselves like our lights have just done. Okay, that was, that was an illustration for your benefit, wasn't it? Okay, there you go. See, a little bit of drama. Um, and so these are the things that we learn what James was saying. And uh, just on this one, I've got to say that um, these are the biggest challenges of all, is that when somebody is leaving something against you, and you've all been in that situation before, but I've found that as, um, as you grow with more responsibility and leadership, um, the only place that you can look is the cross. And Jesus' words were actually along these lines. He said, forgive them, Lord. They know not what they do. And, and Jesus was silent. And uh, that's, the actually, that's actually the only way you can get through this, is by looking at Christ and going, yep, you too. Because by trying to run it down, Winston Churchill made a really good comment. He said, uh, when you're heading somewhere, don't stop to throw a rock at every dog that barks because otherwise you'll never get to your destination. You like that? When you're heading somewhere, don't stop to throw a rock at every dog that barks because you'll never get to your destination. I like that. So tonight, we've looked at heavy loads, we've looked at financial challenges, we've looked at sickness and death, relationship challenges, and unrighteous attack. And let me read to you the words that I open with. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, 
whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. Let me pray. Father, if there's anything that will wreck us, it's this list of five things. In some form or fashion, Lord, we're going to be exposed to these on a weekly basis. Some of these things are just us wrestling with our human nature, the priorities of life, the difficulties of relationships, carrying a heavy workload. Some of them move into almost the evil realm of other people's gossip and bad things against you. But even in that, Lord, you can use these as opportunities to mature us so that we will ultimately be lacking nothing. And when we look to the cross and we read there that silent like a lamb, Jesus was led to the slaughter, the crucifixion. When we see that he looked down upon those who were crucifying him and said, forgive them, Lord, they know not what they do. Lord, we, um, we're reminded that this walk that we have is with you. And the things that are done in our life and uh, it seem to be there as a difficulty in our lives are the very things that we will look back and we will take joy over because we have matured, we have grown, we've learnt life lessons and our blisters have healed and become hardened and so we can walk normally again. So God, for these things we give you thanks. We even give you thanks in advance for the trials that will come even though they don't, we don't know what they are. Because Lord, under your hand, under your direction, uh, we, your servants, are guided and strengthened for greater purposes than the ones we could ever have imagined. So we're grateful and we're mindful of that. And we ask this all for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.